You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction In the fields of bodies burning Machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning their brainwashed minds Welcome to the Anarchist World this week Broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite Listen to the Anarchist World this week Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse Listen to analysis of local, national, international events analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Good to the Anarchist World this week. This program comes to you from the studios of Community Radio 3CR in Melbourne. That's Community Radio Federation via the Community Radio Network across Australia, north and south, east and west through uh, most of the states and territories of this land. So, anarchism, anarchos without rulers. What's an anarchist society? It's a society without rulers. How do you create a society without rulers? You change the parameters which allow rulers, give rulers the ability to determine the lives of billions of people. That's inequalities in power and wealth. So the anarchist struggle is the struggle to devolve power or share wealth, possibly through direct democratic means. It is about holding wealth in common and using for the common good. So if you're involved in that struggle to devolve power and share wealth, I've got some really, really bad news for you or good news. You're an anarchist, whether you like it or not. That's the situation we find ourselves in in 2021. Now, obviously, there's a lot of issues swimming around. And I'd just like to start off with the can-do capitalism, Mr Morrison's or the Liberal National Party's climate emergency panacea, can-do capitalism. Now, one sovereign nation-state, which is a um, bedrock of capitalism, believe it or not, is India, to a significant degree. Not all the states are uh, capitalist, but some of the states within India, most of them are. And if you want to see how, what capitalism can do, look at an Indian slum and then look at the richest private residents in the world in Mumbai, which cost over a billion dollars a number of years ago to build for a family of four. I mean, that's capitalism. Capitalism is a very simple concept. People think it's complex. It's not. It's simple. It's private investment for private profit. In a capitalist economy, if you don't make a profit, you disappear. It's about making profits. It's a very simple concept. And when Mr Morrison talks about can-do capitalism, you begin to understand the very nature of the Liberal National Party agenda. It's not about providing the best resources are the best way of living in this country for all the people of this country. It's pro- about providing the structural and legislative parameters 
which allow capitalism, private investment to private profit, for private profit to flourish. And that's the key word, flourish. And their agenda, whether it's the climate emergency, whether it's social security, whether it's healthcare, whether it's education, whether it's infrastructure, whether it's the provision of services, is all about private investment for private profit. So their agenda is a 18th and 19th century agenda. It's the agenda to break up the commons and reward supposedly effort, not the effort of an individual, but the effort of individuals who use the labour of others to enrich themselves. Now, if there is one figure, which I quote ad nauseum on this program, the Anarchist World this week, that demonstrates can-do capitalism, it's the figure regarding return to investors from investments. 40 years ago, if I was an investor, and I'm not, but if I was, and I invested some money and I made a buck out of that money, 66% or two-thirds would go to the workers who created that profit and one-third would come to me, the investor. 40 years later, courtesy of the deregulation, privatisation, globalisation, corporatisation revolution, which has been legislated for by people like Mr Morrison, the Liberal National Party, and to a lesser degree the uh, so-called Alternative Liberal Party masquerading as the Labor Party, the figures have been turned on their heads. For every dollar an investor invests and they make a profit, obviously some investors lose out and especially small investors lose out because they're uh, competing against corporations. So for every dollar that an investor makes, two-thirds of that dollar goes back to the investor and one-third goes back to the worker who, prov- who uh, creates that profit. And why has that occurred? It's occurred because of a specific legislative agenda which allows the private sector to function without competition. Now, we're all told that capitalism is all about competition. The reality is that capitalism is not about competition. Capitalism is about corporatisation, small firms becoming bigger firms, bigger firms becoming huge firms. And if you look at Australian society where there are no antitrust laws, that means there are no laws in terms of breaking up corporations you will find that most fields of human endeavour are dominated by a handful of corporations. It's that simple. So the end point of capitalism, private investment for private profit, isn't you know, uh, a sharing of resources, but it, it is the creation of an investment class. And what we have in Australia today is about 8% of Australians who've got the disposable income to be investors. 
who are doing very well because of legislation which rewards investors with franking credits if they own shares and with uh, negative gearing, and the list goes on and on, with corporate welfare. Now, I can hear you all jump and down and say, oh, oh, I've got some superannuation. You know, my money is invested in the stock market and I'm benefiting from superannuation. Well, superannuation, as we've seen with the disaster in the aged care sector, is basically you paying for your own retirement and the state having no role in financially supporting you in your old age. It's that simple. It's that simple. So if you want your old age to be dictated by the vagaries of the stock market, the vagaries of capitalism, private investment for private profit, you may be in for a shock. And that shock is not long coming. So can-do capitalism. Now, if we listen to Mr Morris and uh, Mr Joyce and the uh, Liberal National Party, we are told if we listen to them, we are told constantly that somehow we are going to get richer and make no changes to our lifestyles if we attempt to tackle the climate emergency. So you make no changes to your lifestyle, you make no changes to productive processes and you can make a buck out of it. Talk about miracles. I reckon Jesus Christ would have been pissed off, you know, his little miracle with five loaves, was it five loaves and five fishes feeding a crowd of 5,000? Well, Mr Morrison has outstripped Jesus Christ in terms of miracles. He's going to tackle the climate emergency through a can-do capitalist framework, make no personal changes, make no changes to our productive processes. At the same time, we're going to make a buck. Extraordinary. Maybe he's been to church a bit too often. Who knows? Maybe he's beginning to believe his own propaganda. So can-do capitalism, it's up to you. Do you really think it's the solution? It's the panacea to the climate emergency? Do you really think it's a panacea to anything? Because private investment for private profit without regulation, without the formation of economic entities in society like collectives and cooperatives to and state-owned enterprises to offer real competition to the private sector can only continue to pauperise a significant number of people in this country. It's that simple. So what do you want to do? It's very difficult, obviously, not to be involved in the private investment for private profit bandwagon. That's what we have in this country. We're told there's no other way. Obviously, there are other ways. Many people have talked about mixed economies. Many people have talked about uh, creating an economy where you've got state-owned enterprises, privately-owned enterprises and uh, collectives and cooperatives all competing in the same marketplace, offering real competition and offering people alternatives in terms of the lifestyles they want to lead. I mean, nobody gets rich in a cooperative or collective. All you do is you're actually able to, you know, maintain 
a reasonable standard of living and have uh, reasonable relationships with the people around you while you're pr- producing goods and services which are beneficial to the community. So there are, there are options. There are always options. Let's move on. Now, there's been some alarming figures. They're not talking about people like you and me, alarming figures. But there's been some alarming figures over the last few years, especially with the creation of funny money by uh, reserve banks around the world which have given money which doesn't exist to the private sector to lend out to you and me. And with record low interest rates, although there's a pandemic, a worldwide pandemic of COVID-19, we've seen extraordinary rises in profitability for the world stock markets and extraordinary rises as far as housing prices are concerned. And now we are seeing the beginning of inflationary pressures. What's inflation? Inflation is basically when you pay more for the same thing, where your wages or investment returns can't keep up with the increasing cost of living. And inflation is always tied to the availability of easy money, which is used by the investment class to enrich themselves at the expense of the rest of society. And what we've seen is an extraordinary rise in housing prices in this country, which is, I think, has got the second highest housing prices in the world, of 22% over a 12-month period during the COVID-19 pandemic when many people weren't even able to work or work full-time. Extraordinary rises. And now we're hearing stories about inflation. And if you think that somehow interest rates are pegged to the interest rates which which the Reserve Bank pegs, think again. Every one of the major banks in the last two weeks has increased its fixed housing rate loans, the interest on its fixed housing rate loans. And when you realise that the average debt, as far as housing is concerned, is between four hundred and fifty to $550,000, even a 1% increase in interest means you've got to find an extra $5,000. That's $100 a week. And let's not forget that interest rates do go up and they continue to go up. And that's the cycle of private investment for private profit. It's a boom-bust psychology. It's a boom-bust um, economic theory because that's all it is. It's boom-bust, boom-bust, boom-bust. We've had the boom and now we're moving towards the bust. And irrespective of how hard reserve banks work to create money, the reality is that inflation is becoming a real concern. And banks are there, whether they give out funny money or not to you, are there to make a profit. 
An increase in interest rate does not just mean an interest rate in housing loans. It means an increase rate in, in increase in interest rates in business loans. It means an increase in interest rates in personal loans, car loans, goods and services, and the list goes on and on. And as Australians are one of the most indebted societies in the world, we have a looming crisis. A looming crisis as far as uh, inflation is concerned. Now, everybody currently will be telling you that the inflation merry-go-round we've just stepped on as a community is due to COVID-19 supply limitations. What that means is is when the economy gets kick-started and everything gets flowing again, that there will be more goods, more goods available and services available at cheapest prices and, hey, presto, it'll all be good. There'll be no inflation. Well, if you believe in Santa Claus... I think you believe in that theory because there's a lot of theories going around at the minute which uh, really, really need to be torn apart. Now, Premier Dan Andrews, poor old Dan, he's got a problem. And his Public Health and Wellbeing Amendment Bill has given the far right a lifeline. Remember all those people who jumped around, who were jumping around and saying, I'm not going to be vaccinated, I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to do that. My health is more important than the health of the community in general. I'm happy to walk around and spread an infection because that's my right, you know, to infect other people, you know. Well, there was no need, and I've talked about this in the past, There has been no need to change the current pandemic laws in Victoria. None whatsoever. Obviously, Mr Andrews and some senior members of his cabinet felt that the chief health officer, having the power to initiate lockdowns, was at one bridge too far away as far as they were concerned and they wanted to rein in that power and use that power. Now, obviously, during a pandemic, it is a medical health emergency. It's not a political emergency. It's a health emergency. And obviously, during a pandemic, certain things come into play in order to protect the community's health. As I said before, I'm double vaccinated and I'm happy to be double vaccinated. I'm happy to have taken the risk, although I didn't think there was any risk involved. And the reason I'm double vaccinated is very simple. It's very simple. It's not just to protect myself and the people around me. It's also to protect the community as a whole. Because I'm double vaccinated, I'm less inclined to get really sick if I get COVID-19, and I'm less inclined to spread it. And once I get my third injection uh, early next year, which is the six-month period, well, then, you know, my chances of passing it on are exceptionally minimal. So it was a community service. And as far as people who don't want to be vaccinated, well, I understand for various reasons they don't want to be vaccinated, some political, some ideological, some religious. And as vaccination rates increase, these people will be protected through through a crowd immunity. I mean, it's 
very simple. So, so what does Mr Andrews does? He throws out a lifeline to these people because him and his cabinet ministers want to be able to be in total control if there is another pandemic and there will be another pandemic. And if you look at the shenanigans surrounding the current debate regarding public health and wellbeing amendment bill, I think it's very important to make some divisions. Not everybody who's against the current bill is against lockdowns or vaccinations. Most people, not all, but most people who are against the bill are against the idea of power being centralised when that power does not to be does not need to be centralised. And that's the issue. The issue is under the old bill, pandemic bill, the government had to go back to Parliament every four weeks to extend that those restrictions. There was an inbuilt mechanism which didn't allow the government to go ad nauseum, although in Victoria, Parliament did vote to give the Andrews government 12 months of extraordinary powers, which something which you know I was totally against. Because a four-week period is enough to suspend normal rights. And obviously when there's parliamentary scrutiny, that can be extended for another four weeks if it's necessary. At the same time, there's also options under the old bill where you could take legal action if you are unhappy. Whether you succeeded or not, it's a different matter. And whether you had the resources or the money to take legal action, it's a different matter. But legal action could be taken. Under the new bill, these powers can be extended indefinitely. There's no sunset clause to these powers. And secondly, there is no legal recourse. I mean, people talk about there's review here, review there. The, the Chief Health Officer's um, uh, reasons will be uh, published within 7 to 14 days, etc., etc. But the reality is there's no legal review and the powers can be extended indefinitely. So Mr Andrews and his Cabinet Ministers have overreached greatly as far as this legislation is concerned. And they have given a much, much, much needed lifeline to the very people who've been fighting tooth and nail not to be vaccinated and not to follow any restrictions because they think their individual rights are more important than the individual rights of everybody else in the community. As I said last week, the most important right is the right to survive, the right to life. All other rights stem from that right, whether it's freedom of assembly, speech, and the list goes on and on. And if you think that your health is more important than the community's health and that it's your right you know, to strut around and spread disease amongst people, well then... I think you've got it 
totally wrong. So to give people who have this type of mindset, who are becoming a rapidly shrinking minority, a lifeline through the Public Health and Wellbeing Amendment Bill is a a strategical error of the first degree. Strategical error of the first degree. As I said before, under the previous uh, pandemic legislation, it was the Chief Health Officer who made the decisions regarding lockdowns based on health issues, not the political issues of the day. This power needed to be extended every four weeks and there were judicial reviews which could be coming into place. Under the new legislation, all that will change. Irrespective of the amendments which have now been made and which will ensure that the bill will be passed in the next few days. This is the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. My name is Joseph Toscano. This program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3CR. Dot org dot au. That's 3cr.org.au. All right, let's move on. Liar, liar, all things to all people. Have you seen the election strategy? It's very simple. It's wonderful. It's based on fear. It's about getting the Liberal National Party, the private investment for private profit party, back in power so it can continue to pass legislation to ensure its financial backers continue to make money courtesy at the expense of the rest of the community. So how do you do it? How do you do it? Well, the first thing is you need a media which is privately owned, which is corporatised, which is very happy, very, very happy, to push along the private investment for private profit agenda. You know, the can-do capitalist can because that's what they're about. It's about private investment for private profit. So we've got that. Then what you need to do, you need to muzzle any opposition. Now, believe it or not, there is still opposition within the Australian Broadcasting Corporation to the private investment for private profit line, but it's not. Avert, but it's there. And all these people who have been trying to take down the ABC for so long, and again, I call it a government girl at ABC and I make no apologies, all these nice people are pissed off because their complaints aren't being addressed as far as they're concerned. So what does the Liberal National Party do? It launches a parliamentary investigation into the complaints process of the Australian Broadcasting Corporation a few months before the next federal election. So what you do is, if there is any major media outlet in this country which may pose a minimal threat, well, what you do is you attempt to sideline it and you sideline it through this investigation. You attempt to muzzle and sideline it. So if you think... What's happening in Hong Kong is any different to what's been happening is happening in Australia. Think again. Then what you do is you change the parameters for election. It's very simple. I mean, that's what happened in Hong Kong. The Chinese Communist Party changed the parameters about who could stand, 
and the list goes on and on. Well, we have the same issues here in this country. Recently, in the last few weeks, Federal Parliament has passed legislation courtesy of the Alternative Liberal Party as well as the Liberal National Party. That makes it even more difficult for people to stand for Parliament, especially political parties, increasing registration from 500 to 1,500 members. If you think it's easy to have an organisation with 1,500 members, think again. Then you 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 have electoral laws in place which make it all very difficult for independents to get anywhere. You try to muzzle people in different types of ways. So, I mean, this is, this, is, this is all part of the election strategy. Then you've got the really, really good election strategy. You need to create some fear. And obviously over the last 12 months or two years, we've seen the China drum being beaten over and over and over and over again. And we've seen us once again attach ourselves to the United States coattails, thinking the United States is going to protect us. I'll give you a little bit of a historical example. During World War II, most of Australia's troops were sent to the Middle East and Europe to help England stave off the uh, Nazi threat and the, you know, the fascist threat. That's where they went. When the Japanese came racing down through Asia, Australia was basically undefended because we believed that the English or the British would protect this country and we'd put all our eggs in the British basket. When Singapore fell... That illusion was destroyed. The fact that most of Australia's troops were overseas fighting for Britain and the fact that Britain wanted them to stay there and it wasn't for Curtin, the Labor um, Prime Minister, who recalled the Australian troops back to Australia to defend Australia, we would have found ourselves in a little bit more difficult situation. And if it wasn't for the chocos, you like that word, chocos, These were the conscripts who were given six to eight weeks training and then sent up to New Guinea to try to stop the advancing Japanese imperial forces. And the Chocos, as they were called by the more uh, uh, experienced Australian troops, were expected to melt in the sun in New Guinea. They stood up during the Coda Trail with the assistance of the local Papua and New Guinean people and were able for the first time to defeat the Japanese imperial forces. By that time, the rest of Australia's troops had come back to Australia, an alliance had been formed with the United States, and the United St- and Australia became a base from which a counters, counter-attacks were launched. So the, story, the moral of the story was, when push came to shove, the Brits were more interested in the welfare of the British than the welfare of the colonials in Australia. And that's to be expected. Now, over the last 24 hours, we've seen the President of uh, the United States and the Supreme Leader in China have a little meeting. A little meeting. And those of you who keep your eyes on what's happening, we've seen some reasonably large economic engagement over the last few months between China and the United States, and we've seen 
extraordinary number of meetings between officials from both countries that are, have been organised to try to water down the uh, rhetoric that uh, has been flowing between the two countries. So what does that mean for Australia? Is China and the US enter a platonic relationship? What does it mean for the forward scout? That's us, the forward scout. What Morrison has done, and the former Prime Minister, Mr Keating, highlighted this at the press conference a few days ago, what has Australia has done, it's gone right out. It's been the forward scout. You know, we have been annoying the Chinese panda. So what happens when the United States and the United States government is there primarily, not for Australia, it's primarily there for the United States and its citizens and its economic, you know, uh, uh, corporations, you know, its, its economic uh, future. So what do you think happens when China and the US come to an accommodation, which they are currently coming to? What it means is the forward scout Australia is left to fend for itself. And as we, for a long time, have been trying to, you know, remove ourselves from Asia and drag the continent back to Europe, we find ourselves in a very difficult situation because obviously the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese government is not going to forgive the forward scout. And if the forward scout has no protection, and that's what the US-China alliance means... We are left to fend for ourselves. Think about it. Unpleasant. But the rhetoric is wonderful as far as elections is concerned. Because if you look at Australian history, anti-Chinese sentiment, whether it's the Communist Party or whether it's, you know, gold miners in the 1850s and 60s, has always been part and parcel of the Australian way of life. And rattling the communist can, the Chinese can, the Vietnamese can, has always been a successful way for governments, especially reactionary governments, to be re-elected. Creating fear in the community, whether it's fear about social security beneficiaries, fear about First Nations people, fear about a Chinese invasion, fear about this, fear about that. It's a wonderful mechanism by which to drive people back into the arms of the Liberal National Party to ensure them a victory. But it gets better. It gets better. Then we have the emergence of the United Australia Party, Mr Palmer's party, who a lot of people think is some type of independent nutter's party. The United Australia Party is nothing more than the extension of the Liberal National Party and its primary function is to divert votes back through the preference system to the Liberal National Party to ensure they are re-elected in marginal electorates. And what is the prize? For Mr. Palmer, the prize for Mr. Palmer means that all the resource, all the access to resources he has, as far as coal and minerals are concerned, will continue to expand. Remember, this is a man who couldn't pay out 
the workers in Townsville, but who has a personal fortune of over $13 billion. So there's that. So, you know, a wink and a nod, a wink and a nod, a wink and a nod, as far as the United Australia Party is concerned. And then comes the strategy par excellence. And that's the strategy regarding the climate emergency and coal, especially in Queensland, where people are told coal will not be phased out, that we will continue to export ad nauseum. And then Mr Joyce, or Mr Barnaby Joyce, let's just call him Mr Joyce, the Deputy Prime Minister, don't forget he is the Deputy Prime Minister, says... Well, it's a $55 billion export earner for Australia. And while people want to buy, we're happy to sell. Now, let's look at this $55 billion earner for Australia. And this is the tragedy. But we don't seem to look beyond the figures. Look, $55 billion is, you know, is a reasonable amount. I agree. I wouldn't mind $55 billion. I think it, uh, if I had $55 billion, I could actually maybe lease that luxury yacht in uh, Melbourne, which is currently um, in Docklands in Melbourne, which they want $850,000 a week to lease. Yes, there are people who can afford it. You may not believe this. If you don't believe me, look it up. $850,000 a week. Now, if I had $55 billion, maybe I could only could even buy one of those luxury yachts and the 22 people you need to keep it functioning. But that's another story. So $55 billion. Who benefits? Most of our coal, well, all of it, all of our coal exports, the profits that are made are made at the expense of the community as a whole. Because of this country's business-friendly taxation laws, there is minimal return as far as taxation is concerned. Most of the profits that are made are sent overseas because most of these companies are owned by overseas interests and and those that are owned by local interests, most of the profits that are made do not go to the Australian people. We're going to the pockets of billionaires like Mr... Palmer. So when Mr Joyce talks about this $55 billion earner, it's a mirage. Then they talk about all the people that are involved in coal mining. Now, obviously, there are people involved in coal mining, but it's only a small percentage of the population. We're looking at about 3%. Think about it. That's the nature of Australian society today. Let's move on. Oh, yeah, and the biggest thing I forgot. Oh, how could I forget? Because there is about five or six months to go before an election. There could be a March election. Most likely it'll be May. The other thing that's going for the Liberal National Party is Mr Morrison, the chameleon. Mr Morrison, liar extraordinaire. When the president of a significant state, sovereign nation state, calls your, our, not yours, our, unfortunately, is my Prime Minister a liar, you know, there's a problem. 
you know there's a problem. Now, I've been calling Mr. Morrison a liar for years, and so have a lot of other people been calling Mr. Morrison a liar. But the great thing about Mr. Morrison is a brilliant campaigner. He's every man, every man. Currently, he's doing a blitz of the marginal electorates in Western Sydney, hoping that as the COVID-19 restrictions disappear and economic activity returns back to normal, that we'll all have a warm inner glow, especially the residents of Western Sydney and and re-elect Mr Morrison's uh, colleagues to Parliament so he can be re-elected as Prime Minister. So what do you do? You promise everything to everybody. It's very simple. Don't worry about the truth. The truth is only an impediment to a parliamentary campaign. When you have the legacy media behind you and the social media fighting about nothing in particular that's of any importance and giving you a clear run to the finish line, you can promise anything to anybody. And if they believe it, well and good. It's very simple. You go to a marginal electorate and you promise them that and then you promise them this and you promise them that. Because this country's elections are not general elections. They're won and lost in marginal electorates. It's very simple. It's one of the weaknesses of a parliamentary system which is based on representation. Because when you elect a representative, you give them a signed blank cheque to do whatever you like, whatever they like for the next three years, you know, under constitutional restrictions... Obviously, there are some legal restrictions. But I could all pro- I could promise you a free funeral. Free funeral for all Australians. Then I get elected to Parliament and I say, oh, sorry, didn't mean that. I meant, a th- I meant one, three, flower. <laughs> That's the way it goes. Let's move on. So there are many election strategies. There's the pork barrelling strategy, which we saw at the last election, which we will see at this election as far as marginal electorates is concerned. There's the liar strategy, be all things to all people. There's a strategy of having somebody on the sideline who's actually saying they're not working for you when they're actually working for you, like the United Australia Party. There's the strategy of generating fear in the community, and whether it's the Chinese or First Nations people or migrants or asylum seekers or refugees or boat people, doesn't really matter as long as you generate that fear. Then there's that fear about economic management as if governments have anything to do with economic management, especially governments which are basically there to smooth the way, get rid of the impediments for the private investment, the private profit class, the capitalist class. And this goes on and on. So there's lots of ways. There's lots of ways you can manipulate an election, but the good thing is that an increasing number of people are beginning to realise that manipulation is the name of the game. Whether that translates into something at the next federal election, who knows? Who knows? Let's move on. St Basil. Look, I can't remember who St Basil was. I assume he was some Christian martyr. But there is currently a coroner's court hearing on the tragedy which occurred at St Basil's in Melbourne. And uh, 45 people in a very short period of time, died because of COVID-19. And those of you who think that COVID-19 doesn't exist, think again. 45 people. And the tragedy was, was the response. 
Because the aged care facilities are the responsibility of the federal government. A lot of people don't seem to understand that. And as we listen to the coroner's court's investigations and the witnesses, the harrowing accounts which have been given by witnesses and people involved in this slow-moving disaster, it's obvious, it's obvious that leadership was totally lacking as far as the agencies which were responsible at a federal level for regulating what was going on at St Basil. Extraordinary. Extraordinary situation. It's not just their shame, it's our shame. You know why it's our shame? Because for far too long we have allowed privatisation to be the major economic driver in this country. And when Mr Howard privatise the aged care sector and make it a for-profit industry. The fact is that the gates were open to the exploitation of the elderly. Now, St Basil's was theoretically a not-for-profit organisation run by the Greek Orthodox Church, but the reality is many not-for-profit organisations make profits. It's that simple. And they were under the auspices of the federal government, which, in its wisdom, had underfunded the regulatory authorities which were responsible for the aged care sector because as far as the private sector was concerned, they didn't really want to be bothered by too many regulations like minimum amounts spent on feeding somebody in an aged care sector. And the fact is that when Mr Howard and his government privatised the aged care sector, they removed the ratio between staff and residents because the private sector said to them, we can't make a buck if we've actually got to have so many staff to look after the residents and we need to make a buck if you want us to invest in this industry. Now, anybody who's got aged relatives or parents will know that if you've got the money, you can get five-star care, but if you ain't got any cash, you've got big problems as far as aged care is concerned in this country. And the tragedy is that the very people who privatise the aged care sector are the very people who are responsible for the schmozzle that we, we've seen the aged care sector in, where we've seen Royal Commission after Royal Commission highlight the deficiencies. The very people who it affects, the elderly, are those that in droves, I think about 65% to 35%, continue to vote for the Liberal National Party, as if the Liberal National Party is the elderly's friend. It's not. Let's move on. Self-interest. That's the great thing about living in a 21st century capitalist society. Self-interest seems to be the motivation where it's the self-interest of those who don't want to be vaccinated to be, and protect their uh, fellow human beings, or the self-interest of sovereign nation states who basically scuttled the Glasgow climate change meeting and said, well, you know, 
We can't really phase out coal. We'll try to do it. You know, we've got self-interest. We need to get the energy supply in our countries and if there's a bit of energy problems, we may find ourselves out of office. Self-interest. So I'd just like to look at something that a lot of people don't seem to understand, that capitalism, the concept of private investment for private profit, is not the natural order. Now, a lot of people think that survival of the fittest was Darwin's gift to the world. The reality is that human beings have become the dominant species on this planet because of mutual aid. That's right, mutual aid, not competition. Mutual aid. And self-interest is all about destroying the concept of mutual aid. And what 21st century capitalism is all about, as we saw at Glasgow, is about self-interest. If you say to me, well, what about the Chinese? Well, Chinese society is basically a state capitalist society. It's a combination of state capitalism and private capitalism, private investment for private profit. Very simple. It's about self-interest. It's about self-interest. People can't see beyond the interests of their families. For example... In societies where there is no social security net, and there are many societies around the world where there is no social security net, the family becomes fundamental to the survival of that particular group. And self-interest is exceptionally important. But in societies where there are social security nets like Australia, what you do for a social security net it provides stability through mutual aid. And that's what a social security end is about, providing stability for your mutual aid. Now, if we want to solve a problem, it's a little bit like a house on fire. You've got a house on fire. How do you solve the issue? If there's only one or two of you of buckets, that house is going to go up in smoke. You're not going to be able to stop the fire. Impossible. But if a few fire tankers and helicopters turn up and they assist you, there's a good chance that that house will be saved. And that's because of mutual aid. That's what mutual aid is about. It's about people coming together to try to solve problems. For example, Glasgow, people came together, but self-interest won at the end of the day. And self-interest is part and parcel of the capitalist philosophy, private investment for private profit. What could be more self-interest than having an economy based on the concept of private investment for private profit where the human, environmental, social, cultural degradations which occur are irrelevant as long as you make a profit? A little bit like the gambling industry, the corporatisation of the gambling industry we've seen with inquiry after inquiry. Although the gambling industry, to a significant degree, makes its profits from people who've got major 
addiction issues and the state, that's you and me, the taxpayer, has to, you know, pay for the damage done by the gambling industry, it continues to exist. That's the reality. Now, if if we had a society which was based on really private investment for private profit, you would expect that society to have to clean up its own mess. If I go out there and I smash up a few shop windows because I feel like it, right, and I get and I get arrested, I pay a price for that behaviour. I pay a price. But if a large corporation destroys the environment, or if a large, you know, gambling corporation destroys human lives, or if a large aged care facility doesn't look after the interest of its residents, well, we, the community, pick up the tab. We pay the tab. That's the difference. That's the situation we find ourselves in in 21st century society where private investment for private profit is the fundamental and central economic uh, force in our country. So what can you do about it? Well, you can listen to the anarchist world this week and go to sleep at the end of the uh, program. You can listen to the podcast on 3cr.org.au. You can get a warm inner glow. You can call me an idiot. I don't know what I'm talking about. But ultimately, the type of society we find ourselves in is up to us, believe it or not. It's up to us. For far too long, we've been saying, somebody should do something about that, or I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. Living in a depoliticised society, a depoliticised society which is manipulated by social media, we find ourselves in a particularly difficult situation at the end of 2021 because reality, fact and fiction are blurred. Disinformation, not misinformation, but disinformation. There is a difference between disinformation and misinformation. Disinformation is when you put out information which is you know is incorrect. Well... I'm running out of time. You've been listening to The Anarchist World this week. My name's Joseph Toscano. You can go to the YouTube, Public Interest Before Corporate Interest, websites, anarchistmedia.org, pipsy.net, Facebook pages, Toscano for the Public. You can leave messages on 0439 395 489. Don't bother ringing if you don't leave a message. I get tons of calls. I only answer people who leave messages. 0439 395-489 and you can always write to me at yes I do answer letters once a week Post Office Box 20 Parkville 3052 Post Office Box 20 Parkville 3052 Listen to The Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station courtesy of the Community Radio Network next week Evil minds that plot destruction so An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist World This Week, Australia's Sacred Cow Slaughterhouse. 10am every Wednesday. Listen to the Anarchist World This Week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events.
wash my hands. Oh, Lord, yeah. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.